0: Rachel, thanks for reading God's Word to us. just sung praises to God for His grace. We praised Him in our prayers for His grace. I think it's now it's a reminder that God is gracious to speak to us from His Word. So let's go to Him in prayer again and pray for His grace in helping us to understand and respond to His Word. Let's all pray together. Gracious Father, we give You thanks and praise that You are indeed gracious. Father, we thank You that You have spoken. You have spoken through Your Son. Through Him, You've given us Your Word. Father, we pray that as we come around Your Word, we pray for humility, we pray for uh, teachability, we pray for our hearts to be made open, and we pray that You give us ears to hear and hands and feet that are quick to do Your will. Father, we pray that You change us, transform us into the likeness of Christ more and more. And we pray this for ourselves, we pray this for the church, we pray that our witness would be glorifying to You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, change can be challenging, right? Transitions can be tough. And I think we all realize that new is not necessarily better. You know, we're told we live in a world where change is the only constant. And it's not only the only constant, but it's the one thing that seems to be happening faster and faster all around us. Families change. Children grow up, leave the home. Parents grow older. I think even this past week we've seen uh, change, with bereavements. We've seen change happen all around us. We face changes at work as well. I think in some of my conversations with you all, I realised that yeah, some of you have gone through pretty difficult job changes over the past few years. Companies restructure. Companies relocate. Jobs are changed. In some cases, jobs are lost. Uh, places change. Our neighbourhoods change. Familiar places give way to the unfamiliar. New buildings, new addresses. You know, change can be disconcerting. Change can be disorientating. Uh, some of us deal with change by becoming even more protective of what we are familiar with, what we are comfortable with. Uh, confession, this is the reason why I listen to 70s and 80s music. Because change is hard, right? I mean, I can't keep up with, uh, and I don't really wish to keep up with modern Modern music, you know, by my definition, modern music. So what do I do? I listen to 80s music all the time. I listen to 70s music. So you want to talk about classic rock, come find me after the service. You know, I mean, that's one way in which I've dealt with change in my life. You know, I've kind of just fell back on what I find familiar and kind of find comfort and, and you know, refuge in what's familiar because I realize that all around me, things are changing very, very fast. It might comfort us to realize that change also happens in the book of Acts. In fact, it happens very early on in the life of the church, as uh, Rachel has just read for us in Acts 11. So, so far, in the story of Acts, you know, before Acts 10, uh, the gospel has gone out mainly to Jews. Right? We've seen it happen in the first, uh, pretty much the first uh, seven or so chapters of Acts. And then after that, for a few chapters, the Samaritans begin to hear the gospel. Uh, then you have this interesting case of the Ethiopian eunuch hearing the gospel, but he's probably a Jewish uh, so, so, so far, if we think about the Christians in the book of Acts, most of them are Jews, maybe some of them are Samaritans. And at this time, uh, the church in Jerusalem is almost entirely made up of Jews. But as we heard two Sundays ago, as we looked at Acts 10, uh, Acts 10 is a major turning point in the story of Acts. For the first time in the story of Acts, the gospel goes out directly to a non-Jew, you know, If you remember the story, his name is, I don't want to remember the story. Okay, it's terribly discouraging. What? What's his name? Cornelius, thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, so the gospel goes out to a Gentile named Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier. He hears the gospel from Peter, and he turns and believes in Jesus Christ. And from this point on in the book of Acts, the gospel begins to spread to the Gentiles as well, as it moves from Jerusalem to the rest of Judea, and then to Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth, really in fulfillment of what Jesus says in Acts 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses to all these places. This confronts the church with a massive change. Put yourself in the shoes of the Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church. You've been with the church for a while, maybe since the start of the church at Pentecost. You know others in the church well because you all belong to the same Jewish community. You, know, you all are friends. You, know, you all know each other because you're familiar with, with one another. You're comfortable with one another's culture and practices. Church life is familiar. But then you've just heard from your friends you know, in Judea, hey, you know what's happened? You know, Peter has gone and met with some Gentiles in the Gentile home. And what's worse Peter has stayed with this Gentile a few days. Like, Wow, what's going on? And then, and then you hear, wow, this Gentile named Cornelius, he's become a Christian, along with his household, you know, his close friends and his family. And you think these Gentiles, you know, imagine you're in the, in the shoes of the Jew, right? These Gentiles will soon be joining my church. These Gentiles will soon be joining my church. And because they will soon be joining my church, what will they bring? Their culture, their language, their practices, their diets, you know. And if you're a Jew, you're thinking, I'm not sure I look forward to this change. You know, they think church life will never be the same again. The Jerusalem church has to deal with a question that all churches since then have had to wrestle with. You know, how should we relate to people who are not like us, especially when they come into the church? You know, how should we relate to people whom God has brought to us if they're really, really different from us? This was especially difficult for the Jews because they believed that they were God's people. They had grounds to believe that. To be a part of God's people, if you were a male, you had to be circumcised. You, know, you undergo the religious ritual of circumcision on the eighth day, according to Jewish law. The Gentiles were uncircumcised and therefore were considered unclean. Because they were considered unclean, they had no part of God's people. As we've heard earlier, Jews wouldn't even visit a Gentile home to eat with them because they didn't want to be defiled. They didn't want to become unclean. So it's not surprising that the Jews, the Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church, what did they do? They're criticizing Peter. They're having a really difficult members meeting. The church is gathered And people are bringing accusations against Peter. They're accusing him of being too friendly with unclean Gentiles. It's a really serious accusation. This is not just, you change the color of our carpet, we don't like it. But this is a really serious accusation because it calls into question, Peter's authority as an apostle, it calls into question the whole Gentile mission. You know, you can say that this is a critical point in the life of the church. How the church responds at this point, will determine, and I'm not exaggerating, the future direction of the church. You know, will, will the church in Jerusalem and other churches that are now predominantly Jewish, will they reach the nations with the gospel? Or will they simply remain a church for Jews? Will they reach the nations or will they simply remain a church for Jews? Will God's grace stop with this church Or will it flow through the Jerusalem church and on to the nations for the blessing of many, many others? Gentiles. Point one. How does Peter explain himself? Peter's explanation. God is doing something new. Peter's explanation to his Jewish brothers takes up most of our passage, verse 4 to 17. Verse 4 tells us that he explained it to the church in order, you know, those, those two words, in order, which implies that Peter was very careful. And Peter was very thoughtful as he explained what was happening to the church. You know, th- th- this is amazing for Peter. You know, if you read the Gospels, Peter comes across as, what, rash. You know, Peter kind of shoots his mouth off, right, so speaks without thinking. But, but here, you, know, you find Peter actually somewhat transformed, right? Now, the church, is bringing to, bringing, the church is accusing him of something, but instead of getting defensive, instead of quarreling, what does he do? He, he's humble and he's patient. And he, and he humbly and patiently explains what's happened to the church in order. You know, if you think about the situation, the Jerusalem church is actually resisting God's will. They are the ones who are actually wrong. Peter is right. And, and yet, Peter doesn't get frustrated or impatient with the church. He doesn't pull rank. He doesn't play the, I'm the apostle card. Listen to me. My way or the highway now. You know, but what does he do? He, he patiently persuades through the teaching of God's word. You know, he, Peter's a wonderful model of ministry. He's a wonderful model for all of us. You know, how, do we, how do we move? How do we, pers- how do we kind of grow? How do we do these things? We Learn from God's Word patiently. We teach God's Word to one another patiently and humbly. And we trust in the power of the Word, I mean, the power of God's Spirit to kind of move us along, listen to God more and more. So as, as leaders, those of us who are leaders, you know, whether you're an elder, uh, a deacon, uh, a CG leader, or someone who just meets up with someone else during the week to, do, to read the Bible and, and to encourage one another, if if you are if if that's one of you, great. Continue to trust in God's word. Encourage one another with the word of God and move one another towards Christ, patiently and humbly as you open the word to one another. And if you are a member of the church, how should you? What should you do? I think the encouragement to you, if you are a member, is to be humble and teachable. That that's a wonderful way to encourage your leaders, whether it's the elders, the deacons, or your CG leader. Or someone who's trying to meet up with you to read the Bible. Being humble and teachable is a wonderful way to encourage them. They don't, hey, I'm not wasting my time. That you, you actually want to learn and to grow. Good way to encourage your leaders. And in his explanation, Peter tells the story of how Cornelius and his family and friends come to hear the gospel. For the sake of time, we won't go through the, the narrative of the story again. We did that two Sundays ago in Acts 10. And this is pretty much the same story. But I want to highlight the main point of Peter's explanation. What's, what's the gist, the, the, the summary of what Peter is saying here in these verses? It's a simple one. Peter is saying God is at work. God is at work. How is God at work? Peter says God speaks and communicates. He appears to him in a vision. Uh, he, he speaks to Peter. You know, what God has made clean, do not call common. He says it three times. You know, Pete, God by his spirit, urges Peter to go to Cornelius' house, telling Peter to make no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. So that's one way in which God is at work. He, he speaks, he communicates. Another way that God is at work here is God sovereignly coordinates all the events we read about in these verses. You know, with, with perfect timing, God brings Cornelius' messengers to Peter's house at the very moment. At the very moment, verse 11, when he speaks to Peter, In the vision. No coincidence, completely orchestrated by God. Another way that God is at work here is that God is at work in salvation. Even before Peter is done preaching, God pours the spirit out, God pours his spirit out on Cornelius and his household, just as he did upon the Jewish Christians at Pentecost. God is at work to, to save Cornelius and his household. God is at work to unite Jews and Gentiles as one people in Christ. And God is saying that Cornelius now, because he's because he has the spirit, he's now clean, made clean through the blood of Jesus. And because he's made clean, he is a full member of the family of God. Not a second class citizen because he's a Gentile, but he's a full member because he has the same spirit as the Jewish Christians. So that's Peter's point in his explanation. God is at work, and he's sovereign. He's working to accomplish his purposes in the world. He's, this God is strong. He's mighty to save. And I think these, these truths about God are so helpful for us as we wrestle with change in our lives, you know, whether it's change in a church or, or change in our lives. And what, what holds us fast in the midst of an ever changing world? What holds us fast? What holds you fast? in the midst of an ever-changing world? What, what do you look to for stability? What, what do you look to for comfort and refuge when change happens all around you? Sometimes good change, sometimes bad change. What, 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 do, we look for comfort and, what do we look to for comfort, for strength, for refuge? As, we've, as we listen to Peter's explanation, Peter says, look to God to God. He's the one who is working. He's the one who is in control. He's the one who works everything from the beginning to the end. He's the one who saves us by His grace. He's the one who unites us as one people. Look to Him. Look to Him. I love the hymn, Abide With Me. You all know the hymn? Abide With Me, Fast Falls, The Even Tide. We all sing that hymn. There's a wonderful line, or two lines in that hymn that say, change and decay in all around I see. I think we can relate to that. And it says, O thou changest changes not, abide with me. We need to hear that, don't we? In the midst of change, in the midst of uncertainty, of worry, God, you do not change. He's still gracious. He's still our God. We, we can rest in you even as we wrestle with these changes in our lives. So God is at work. And then, second main point, that you see the church growing through change here in Jerusalem. God is doing something new. He's gathering a people from the nations to be his treasured possession. God is growing his church, and that growth happens through change. So what can we learn about how we as a church can grow through change from, from these verses here? Just three points, the rest of the sermon. Number one, we grow when we listen to God's Word. We grow when we listen to God's Word. You notice in verse 16, Peter says that he remembered the Word of the Lord. He remembered the Word of the Lord. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1 that he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that. And it's Jesus' words in Acts 1 that now help Peter in Acts 11 understand what is going on. And Peter wants that same word of Jesus to instruct the Jerusalem church. Now, Peter remembers God's word and he wants this church to also remember the word of the Lord, to be instructed, to be, uh, to to understand, to interpret the circumstances through the word of God. And essentially, Jesus is, uh, Peter is saying to them that, or rather, let me back up a bit. So, in the Old Testament, God's word in the Old Testament promised that he would pour out his spirit on his people. Now, that's what God promised in the Old Testament, that he would give his spirit and his spirit would give his people new hearts uh, and gather them back to himself as a clean people, washed of their sins. So that's, that's the promise of God in the Old Testament, that he would pour out his spirit on his people, his people would be given new hearts. Peter is saying that Jesus is the one who fulfills God's promise in the Old Testament. And Peter says, essentially, to the Jerusalem church that change has come because Jesus has come. Change has come because Jesus has come and Jesus has fulfilled all the promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit to all who believe in Him. This means that the people of God are no longer defined by physical circumcision. So, to to become a become part of the people of God, you, you, no, you no longer have to be physically circumcised. But to become, a part, to become part of the people of God, you need the Spirit of God. And in order to receive the Spirit of God, you need to believe in the Son of God. So that's what Peter is saying. As long as you believe in the Son of God, even if you haven't been circumcised physically, you can belong to the people of God on equal terms with those who have been circumcised. Why? Because you have the same spirit of God living in you. It's the spirit of God who creates unity between you and Gentile. Now you might be wondering, didn't, didn't the Old Testament talk about circumcision? You know, didn't, didn't the Old Testament say that you had to be circumcised? So what happens to that? Is the Old Testament wrong? You know, how do we understand that? Well, Physical circumcision in the Old Testament was meant to be a temporary sign not a permanent sign, but a a temporary sign to point us forward to the day when Jesus would come and fulfill God's promises. And Jesus would, Scripture says, would actually circumcise, not us physically, but circumcise our hearts. Jesus himself, by his Spirit, would bring about that inward change that physical circumcision was meant to be a picture of. So when the reality comes... The reality of Jesus comes, the temporary sign is, is no longer needed. The temporary sign has served its purpose, and we now look to the reality that we have in Jesus and the Spirit. You know, it's like, it's like going on a journey, you know, you want to get to the destination, and along the way, you follow the signs, right? You know, turn left, turn right, follow this sign, get on this highway, and so on. So you follow the signs. But when you get to the destination, you won't still still be looking at the signs. The signs have served their purpose. Why? Because you've arrived safely at your destination. What Peter is saying to the Jerusalem church is that Jesus is that destination. All the temporary signs like circumcision, physical circumcision, point to that final destination, Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Jesus, the temporary signs are ready to kind of from the scene. So now, if you believe in Jesus, you have the Spirit. You are a part of the people of God. Therefore, what matters is not physical circumcision. What matters is we have believed in Jesus and our hearts have been changed through the Spirit that Jesus gives to us. That, that's, the, that's the amazing good news of conversion. That's what conversion means, that we believe in Jesus and our hearts are made new We become a new creation through the Spirit who is given to us. This means that there is nothing, there is nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves clean in God's sight. Nothing. It's not about going to church. It's not about being religious. It's not about doing lots of things to try to make ourselves clean. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves clean. our, Our sin has separated us from God, who is perfectly pure and good and holy, and our hearts, who we really are on the inside, our hearts have become sinful and corrupt because of the fall. And every single one of us, we are powerless to change our hearts. We cannot change our own hearts. That's why Jesus says, I need to give you my spirit. There's no way for us to change our own hearts. Maybe if you're a non-Christian here, you might find this a bit surprising. Now, Christians don't believe that you can be, become a Christian by being a good person. That's not how you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian by being a good person. You become a Christian by, by actually recognizing that you are not a good person and that you need Jesus to change your heart. So, so if, if, you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian... I'm so glad you're here, and I hope that you understand. This is how we believe become Christians. This is, what, this is what the Word of God says. We become Christians not by being good people. None of us are good people. Our hearts are not good. We become Christians by believing in the only one who is good, Jesus. Because he's good, he gives us his spirit. His spirit changes our hearts. That's how we become Christians. That's how we become a follower of Jesus. The good news is that God did not abandon us to our sins. He sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to save the lost. Jesus came, fully God, fully man. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He died the death bearing God's judgment in the place of sinners like us. Because we are not good. And because Jesus died and rose from the dead, our sins can be forgiven. Only because of what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, we can be brought back to God. And and the invitation to every single one of us is to turn to God and to trust in Jesus alone to save us. This is how we become a part of the people of God. Only Jesus can make us clean on the inside because He's the only one can give the Spirit to us, the Spirit who makes us clean. And God has revealed this Gospel to us through the Bible. Therefore, the only way for us to grow is to listen to what God has said in His Word. I realize that perhaps a number of us have been wearied by change. We're experiencing a bit of a change fatigue. You know, and as the newest pastor on staff, I recognize that I'm a part of the change as well. I'm part of the change that has taken place. But change can be difficult. Definitely, change can be difficult. So, so we want to be careful to avoid changing something simply for the sake of changing it. Or just changing for the sake of doing something new or different. And you know, we, we should be wise about how and when we change things. And and we also don't want to change and throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, because there are good things happening that we want to continue and strengthen. So all that is true. But at the same time, we must realize that biblical change, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about kind of bad change, I'm talking about biblical change. Biblical change is necessary in a Christian life. You know, we, we can't become a Christian and don't expect to change. Why? Because the the, the Christian life, how does it begin? The Christian life begins with change, doesn't it? It's called repentance. The Christian life begins with a change of allegiance, where we no longer serve ourselves or our sin, but now we serve King Jesus. The, The Christian life begins with a change of kingdoms, where we leave the kingdom of darkness, and we are now citizens of the kingdom of light. It begins with change. And in fact, Scripture tells us that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, how many of us would say that we are perfectly conformed to the image of Christ at our conversion? Hands up. Amen. No one one raised their hands. Praise God for that. So so God has has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we are not the tense. We are being transformed. Present tense, right? We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Our, our glorification actually doesn't begin with our death. Our glorification begins now, Paul says. Even now, if you are Christian. Now, you are a new creation. Now, you are being transformed to conform to the image of Christ. It's impossible to want to be a Christian and not want to change. Because that's God's will for each and every single one of us if we believed in Christ. And, and God means for us to change now as we live out our Christian lives for Him. That He changes us as we follow Jesus. What is true for us as individual Christians, is true for us as a church as well. God calls us to constantly listen to His Word. God calls us to constantly speak His truth to one another. Why? So that we are changed, become more and more like Jesus. So that that our church as a whole grows to maturity in Christ, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. So, Maybe something you could think about for this, maybe today, now, this week. Each one of us ask ourselves, are we growing in the faith? Are we actually growing in the faith? How are we growing in the faith? And I I don't mean, you know, yeah, I know know so much more Bible knowledge now because I go to this study or go to that study. I know so much. No, are we growing to become more and more like Jesus? Not not just we have lots of knowledge about Jesus, but we know him. Because we trust him. And and our lives are becoming more and more like his. What what are some things we can ask ourselves? Are, are we growing in love? Are we growing in holiness? Are we growing in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we growing in joy? Do you rejoice daily in Christ? you smile more? Are you, are you filled with more thankfulness daily because of Jesus? Do you, do you, does the thankfulness flow out of your life into the lives of those around you so that your family members see wow you really, you really love Jesus and you're really thankful I, I can tell Even in the midst of your struggles, even in the midst of trials and hard times, you are still thankful. Are we growing in thankfulness? Are we growing in wisdom? not, Not intelligence, but wisdom. James 3, right? The wisdom from above is pure, visible. It kind of brings a harvest of righteousness. Are we growing in that kind of wisdom? Be wise because we've received wisdom from God. Are we growing in forgiveness? You know, are, are, are our accounts getting shorter and shorter? Or are our relational accounts getting longer and longer? Right, that's, a good, that's a good gauge of whether we're growing in the faith. Are we quicker to forgive? Are we quicker to seek reconciliation, to to kind of move towards someone even if that person is wrong and has offended us? Are we quicker to initiate, kind of initiate reconciliation? Are we growing in our trust of Jesus? Are we growing in our love for his word? Not the love of knowledge per se, but the love for him and his word. Are we growing in obedience because we love Jesus, love his word? We want to conform our lives to his word. These, these could be difficult questions for us to answer. But I pray that we as a church, we as individual Christians, we all ask ourselves these tough questions. To ask, are we growing in... the faith? Are we growing to become more like Jesus? This is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It happens this year. And the... The Protestant reformers understood the principle of growth and change very well. One, one, of the, one of the mottos of the Reformation is this, always being reformed according to the Word of God. The reformers said we need to, be always, we need to be always be reformed according to the Word of God. What they mean is that we as Christians, we as churches need to strive to be listening churches, not, not listening to ourselves, not, not listening to the culture, but, but listening to the Word of God, always being humble and teachable before the Word of God. So, so we never want to go into a Bible study saying, oh, I've heard that before. You know, that, that's a terrible attitude to have. So we, we always want to come to a place where the Word of God is being taught and say, God, speak to me. Help me to understand and to grow and, and to you know, kind of find applications for this truth that you are teaching me now. We need to have hearts that are eager and humble to learn that way. So we want to be a listening church that hears and obeys the leading of God's Word. Peter led the Jerusalem church through change. How? By teaching God's Word. We must do the same. And the responsibility to be hearers and doers of the Word doesn't just rest on a small group of leaders here. The responsibility to hear and do God's Word rests on all of us as the people of God. Each and every one of us must speak and listen to God's word. And, and this speaking and listening, listening and speaking, should take place in our lives through the week. Not just here on a Sunday, but you know, after you dismiss from here, when you're hanging out outside, you know, you're kind of speaking to one another God's word. And then after that, during the week, maybe you're meeting up with one another over lunch, over coffee, and you're speaking the same word to one another. So the church becomes an echo chamber for God's Word. You know, God's Word is spoken. It kind of bounces off every single one of our lives, and it bears fruit in our life as a church. That's that's the kind of people that we want to be. That's how we grow through change. So we grow by listening to God's Word. Second way, we grow. We grow when we focus on God's mission. Pop pop quiz. Pop quiz. Look at these eighteen verses. How many times is Cornelius, his name Cornelius, mentioned in this passage? So do a quick scan of these eighteen verses. How many times? In chapter eleven, verse one to eighteen. How many times? Anyone? Oh, Martin Ivanza. Yes. Right? Zero. Give you a free book, Martin. <laughs> you know, it's, in, it's interesting, right? Cornelius' name is mentioned zero times. Instead, how is he referred to? The Gentile. You notice that? The Gentile. The Gentiles have done this. The Gentiles have heard the gospel. The Gentile, you went to a Gentile house. Why, why does Luke record it like that? You know, why, does, why, doesn't, why doesn't Luke use Cornelius' name? I, I think Luke is trying to make the point, God is trying to make the point, that what happens to Cornelius is not unique. That's why he doesn't mention his name. What happens to Cornelius will happen not just for Cornelius, but will happen to all the Gentiles who believe in Jesus. That's why Cornelius' name is not mentioned. You know, Luke is trying to show us that God's intention is not just to save a special Gentile named Cornelius, but Luke is trying to show us that God's intention is to save the Gentiles through the gospel. Peter is saying to, these, to the Jerusalem church, hey, God is a missionary God. Now this, this God is a God of grace who sends his gospel to the ends of the earth, calling both Jews and Gentiles to become his people through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and he sends his spirit, he, he washes them all by his spirit, this same spirit that we all share. This is God's mission And the, the church in Jerusalem actually lost sight of this. You know, the, the church in Jerusalem, they lost sight of God's mission. And instead of rejoicing because the Gentiles were being saved, you know, what were they saying to Peter? Yeah, we, we know that, that Colossians become Christian, but you ate with Gentiles. You bad person. So you can kind of see how they've actually lost sight of what's really central to the gospel, right? It's like, yeah, we, know, we, don't, we don't care that the Gentiles become Christians, but you shouldn't eat with them. Let me give a quick application for us. You know, what does this look like for us? We're about to move back into our new building. I think we a few more Sundays here. You know, having a, a building of our own in land Singapore is, is a real blessing. You know, we thank God for that. that we have a space call our own. Uh, that we can you know, kind of do ministry there. It's great. But, but I also want us to realize that having a building can also hinder the mission of God. Now, having a building does not make us a church. Like, like, we're still a church. we meet in temporary premises here. Having a building does not make us a church. In fact, having a building can hinder the church from fulfilling its mission. How does that, how does that happen? We, we become more concerned about our comfort in the new building than we are concerned about the mission of God done through that building let me give you a concrete example of that. Parking. Parking, right? We love to talk about parking. How can we be missional, or, you know, mission-minded in, in how we think about parking? You know, for, for those of us who are members, you know, especially leaders, you know, I, I, plan, I, I plan to do that. You know. uh, why not park off-site? Don't park at the building. You know, don't park at the building so that Visitors and non-members and non-Christians can actually park there. And we can serve them and, and help them to be, you know, sort of make it more convenient for them to hear God's word. So, so we can kind of park somewhere else. I mean, that, that's a, just a small example of how we as a church can be mission-minded even in the way we think about parking. You know, and, and when we move to the new building, here's another example. When we move to the new building, we'll have Probably more visitors come among us. You know, people are curious. They come to a new space. Say, hey, you know, I'm here to check things out. I want to find out about your church. So one way we can be mission-minded as a church is for each and every one of us. So don't just blame the ushers. Don't just blame the welcome table. Each and every one of us, why not talk to someone you haven't met? It's a wonderful way to be mission-minded as a church. Just you know, after service or before service, so look around. Say, hey, I, I don't recognize you. you know, who are you? you know, tell them your name. Kind of just help them to get connected somehow. You know. I've, I've learned to not ask someone how long. You know, I've, I've learned to not ask people whether you're new. Because I, I've done that before. You know, are you new here? I've been here for five years. Like Super embarrassing. So Sorry, it took me five years to come around to get to know you. Uh, so, so don't say that. Right? Instead, say, hey, how long have you been coming? Tell them your name. Ask them, hey, are you in a CG? Have you met so-and-so? Can I, can I connect you with someone else? Oh, you work in such a place. Can I connect you with someone else who works in the same place? Uh, oh, you live in this area. Can I you know, introduce you to some people I know who also live in the same estate as you do? You know, all of us, we should be mission-minded in that way. You know, kind of connecting with the people who come among us. Whether it's parking, whether it's how we greet one another, outsiders after the service. There's so much more that we can do. When we move to the new so I, I pray that the new building will be a place of ministry. Not a place that makes us comfortable, but a place of ministry. But people can come and know Jesus and follow him, become more and more like him. So so Peter has to remind the Jews about God's mission. I think we also need regular reminders of God's mission. A few months ago, a good Christian friend of mine gave me this little sign to put up in my office. Uh, It was very nice. Her teenage daughter did the handwriting, so it was very pretty. Uh, The sign says, keep the gospel the main thing very helpful for a pastor to hear. Keep the gospel the main thing. And I think That's what Peter is reminding of here, reminding us of here in this passage. Keep the gospel the main thing. That's what God has saved us for. What does that look like for us? Let me give you a bit more handle on what that looks like for you all, for all of us. Again, four questions for us to think about. You know. In the work of making disciples, what does that look like in our lives? Four questions for us to think about. Number one, first question Am I meeting non Christians? Am, am I engaging with non Christians? Am I getting to know them? Just, just getting to know them, building relationships with them. Am I engaging with non Christians? My workplaces, you know, my workplace, maybe my family, uh, in my neighborhood, schools, etc. Et or even you know, meeting someone here at church. Am I engaging with a non Christian? Second question, am I evangelizing, sharing the gospel with the non-Christians I meet? Am I building relationships with them in order to kind of get to know them and really share Jesus with them? Am I evangelizing, sharing the gospel with others? Third question, am I being established and growing as a Christian? And we asked that earlier. And am I establishing other Christians to help them become more like Jesus? are we establishing other Christians to help them become more like Jesus? Look around the church. Look at the relationships in your CG and elsewhere. Are you helping one another, establishing one another faith? Fourth question, am I being equipped to make disciples? Am I equipping another Christian to make disciples? Question to ask. Especially if you are Especially if you're a leader, maybe a CG leader, or you know, a small group Bible study leader, a uh, ministry leader, an elder, a deacon. You know, am I equipping someone else? I think disciples, raising up other leaders. So just four things, right? Engage, evangelize, establish, equip. Are we engaging? Are we evangelizing? Are we establishing? Are we equipping? Those are just... Simple things for us to think about as we think about how we can get involved in the work of making disciples. That's how we focus on God's mission together. How we grow as a people. Focus on God's mission. Finally, just to close, very quickly, we grow to glorify the God who saves. How did the Jerusalem church respond to Peter? Verse 18 says they fell silent and they glorified God fell silent and they glorified God. One, one commentator says, their criticism ceased and their worship began. It was a wonderful way to end the members' meeting, right? Their the criticism ceased and their worship began. I think that's what we want to be as a people. Worship God together. What, what did they worship God? They, they began to see that the gathering in of the Gentiles was, yes, it was a change in the life of the church, but it was, a, it was evidence of God's grace. The, the, the Jerusalem church began to realize that, wow, God is the one who saves. God's the one who's gracious. You know what, what moves the church to respond in this way? is a renewed thankfulness for the grace of God will move the hearts of God's people to give themselves again to God's mission. You know, a, a renewed thankfulness for the grace of God will move our hearts to give ourselves again to God's mission. The Jerusalem church understood again that salvation is entirely by God's amazing grace. They didn't deserve it because of their ethnicity. Neither did they earn it through circumcision or other good works. You know, Peter says in verse 17, the Holy Spirit is a gift, undeserved. God's gift to his people, both Jews and Gentiles. Even repentance and faith are gifts from God. You know, It says in verse 18, you know, the, the church says, wow, God has granted Given. Repentance to the Gentiles. It's a gift. But that means that, what we, yes, we are responsible for repenting and believing in Jesus, but we cannot take credit for our response. We can't, we can't kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person because I actually responded to Jesus, not like that person over there. No, we can't take credit for our response. We, we do respond ourselves, but that response is a gift from God. Grace from beginning to end. It is God who changes our hearts by spirit and enables us to trust and obey. That's why we glorify the God who saves. That's why we sang the songs that we did earlier on in the service. He's the one who grants repentance that leads to life. And and when this grace of God grips our hearts, what will happen? We will show grace to others we will show grace to others. If our hearts have truly been moved by God's grace, we will show grace to others. If we understand ourselves to be objects of God's amazing grace and love, how can we resist God's purpose to show that same grace to others through us? The church will gladly listen to God's word. The church will gladly focus on God's mission for the sake of God and His glory. This is the goal that moves us to change and grow as a church. This church doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. We are His treasured possession. We are the bride of Christ. and God intends for us, church, to be a display of His glory. The good news is that God is not done with us yet. He's not done with us He is still working in and through us, sometimes through difficult changes, but He is working in and through us by His Word, by His Spirit, to make us more and more like Jesus. Change can be hard, but we can entrust ourselves to God and be assured that He is transforming us for our good, for His glory. Now the church in Jerusalem grew through change to glorify God. So will we. So will we. Is Jesus' promise to us? Hear what Jesus. Hear what Ephesians five says. Christ loved the church. He loves the church more than any one of us could ever hope to love the church. Christ loved the church. His His church. He gave Himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that's us, might be holy and without blemish. That's why we change. And we look forward to that day when we will become like Jesus perfectly. Trust him. Listen to him. Follow Him. Pray together. Gracious Father, we thank You that You are indeed the God of amazing grace. Father, as we come to You, we entrust ourselves to You afresh. We pray that You will help us to be those who hear and do Your Word. We pray that we will be those who are soft, as we are confronted by Your Word. We pray for Your Spirit to poured out upon us afresh. We pray that we would come and know you even more to be our God and, and we as your people. So help us to follow you, help us to speak of Jesus, help us to glorify you in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.